Hi everyone, you are listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And uh, today we have a very special guest all the way from down under, uh, Australia. Uh, we have Martin Crabb, who's the CIO of Shore & Partners, which is also an EFG subsidiary. So um, Martin, welcome. Great to be here, Mo. Obviously, you are a bit of a celebrity in Australia. I often see you on LinkedIn and uh, and uh, various different uh, news um, uh, um, news programs and and uh, so on and so forth. How's it like being a celebrity in Australia? <laughs> uh, a, a very small fish and a very and a very a very big pond. No, it's good. Look, we we try to get the Shore and Partners brand, um, you know, out out and about. We do a lot of media. We have a media room here. We do uh, live crosses with CNBC and Bloomberg and and the local. Uh, we had the the one of the local news stations here covering the Reserve Bank meeting yesterday, and they wanted our dealing room. So we're just trying to help out the local media and uh, and get the Shore and Partners uh, name out and about. So we're we're pretty active on on that front. And I enjoy I enjoy talking to the media and talking to clients most and I'm, I'm sure you do as well it's a good chance to get get the message out there yeah no absolutely and um thanks for thanks for joining this podcast so obviously we don't get oh, on certainly on this podcast we don't get a lot of time to talk about australia so we want to do a bit of a, a deep dive on exactly what's going on we've seen uh, australia prob- probably be probably one of the most successful countries in tackling covid in terms of having a lockdowns and getting people vaccinated and then now opening up um what do you think has been the the why has it been so successful do you think relative to other parts of the world um and um you know have you seen the same sort of complaints in australia as, as we have here in the uk or elsewhere in the way covid was handled yeah no it's a good question and and probably um Next door to us in New Zealand, they've they've had a fantastic record as well in terms of you know uh, fatalities and 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 people who are ill. I think being an island certainly helps, Mose. I mean, you can you can shut your borders down and um, and you know we, we operate a state based health system, so every state in in Australia um, has its own borders. Um, so locking down the country, which New Zealand obviously did too, to to any any sort of um, new arrivals making sure they're quarantined and making sure they're isolated and so forth. But then within each state, each state locked down. So you couldn't travel from Melbourne to Sydney or, and so all of that movement, which, you know, which causes the spread of the virus, that was really locked down from day one. Uh, Each state also had a track and trace mechanism. So people had phone applications and and things like that. So if someone did get a virus um, or get get, um, a positive test result, you know, people that were in, in contact with them got notified very quickly. So they managed to sort of get that track and tracing out really quickly. Um, and I think it's probably just because Aussies are quite complicit. You know, we, we don't, we, we've got the anti-vaxxers and all that sort of stuff, but the, the vast popula- vast majority of the population are quite complicit when it comes to things of national, national interest. So whether it's bushfire appeals or flood appeals or whatever, Aussies do tend to rally around the cause. They're not too sort of anti-establishment on that front. Not like, you know, people in, in the southern states of the US and some parts of Europe, we're still struggling to get people vaccinated. So we were we were really good at controlling the 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 outbreak, you know, during 2020 and 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 uh, into 21. We're a bit slow on the vaccination, to be honest, Mose. I look at some other countries who are a lot more advanced on the vaccination. We started slow. We we didn't order enough. Um, we didn't order enough product, so we couldn't get it out into people's arms. Once we got the product, you know, we got to we got to ninety five percent 
uh, vaccination rates very, very quickly. So we're now in a pretty good uh, situation. Our health, we're a rich country. There's only 25 million people, but it's about 2 trillion or probably 1.6 trillion uh, US GDP. So it's quite a wealthy country. So we've got a good healthcare system. So we've, we've, we're basically, we're not adopting COVID zero like China because they can't handle it, right? But so we've now got a situation where we're pretty much just letting people get it, which uh, a lot of other countries are. So we've been very lucky, I think, having being an island, having state lockdowns, doing track and trace, and also having a pretty um, complicit population have all sort of helped. Uh, so, so that's uh, very interesting, and I think um, the impact on the Australian economy has been far less than it than it has been, for example, in the UK and 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 uh, and, mm. and other economies. Uh, so let's let's pivot to the Australian economy as it stands today. Obviously, we have the post-COVID environment. Um, obviously, we've we've had you know big spike in commodity prices, and and obviously Australia benefits from that. Um, uh, maybe you can give us in terms of the state of the Australian economy at the moment and. Where do you think the overall direction of travel is? Yeah, so um, the um, the commodities are a real swing factor for the the economy, and the mining only makes up like five to seven percent of GDP, and it employs almost no one because most mines, as you know, are kind of automated these days. So, in terms of the GDP impact, it doesn't look big, but it's a big swing factor. So, we went from having you know forty or fifty dollar iron ore, and you know we shipped a billion tons of that a year, or a billion and a half tons a year. So. Uh, a couple of dollars in iron ore is a big difference. We've now got $140, $150 US iron ore and, and the currency has been weak. So in ter- our terms of trade has been like a lot of uh, commodity exporters going through the roof. So we're now printing, um, you know, current account surpluses, which for Australia, you know, for as long as I can remember, it was always a deficit. And so we've now got these current account surpluses and they certainly help uh, governments in terms of tax revenues, but also royalty payments. So some of the states... Uh, get royalties on on mining exports. So that's certainly been a, a good shot in the arm. And we've needed it because the government's run a massive fiscal uh, deficit, as a lot of countries have. So we've got a, you know, I think we got up to 15% of GDP as as government stimulus, which is a big number. But certainly the, the terms of trade and the and the mining uh, profits uh, are, are a real flip, flip in the arm, as is agriculture. So obviously the, the tragedy of Ukraine has pushed things like wheat prices up and 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 barley and corn and these other sort of grain uh, grain um, commodities. Again, Australia's a big exporter of those. So we've been a recipient, a positive recipient of, of, of what's been going on in the world. So um, that's helped the local economy. We're running pretty hot. We've got, you know, 4% unemployment. Um, and it's, you know, that's probably as low as you're going to get. You might get three and a half. So we're kind of full employment. And like a lot of other countries, most we're starting to see uh, inflation starting to come through. So the the housing market's been crazy. You know, it's been up 45% probably since pre-COVID. So a lot of money's gone into housing and pushed housing prices up. So we're going to have to deal with that. Um, but right now it feels great. Um, companies are making good money. Everyone's got a job. Interest rates are still quite low. But you kind of feel a little bit like it's as good as it gets. You know, it probably gets harder from here. So the uh, RBA recently uh, raised uh, interest rates, um, and uh, you know, what is kind of the forecast for for rate hikes built in now? And what do you think is a realistic number as we go into next year? Yeah, I mean that that's the big debate at the moment. So the the Reserve Bank themselves have hinted that two point five percent is the neutral rate for for cash. 
uh, because they've got a two to three percent inflation target. So that that's gone. They're not quite at a dot plot level of forecasting, but that's the sort of number that's been bandied around. The market's at about three point seven five uh, terminal cash rate, which is obviously pretty punchy. And most professional economists are around about 2% as peak cash rates. So there's a big gap between the professional forecasters, the Reserve Bank and and the market itself. So um, that's probably not uncommon. I think we're seeing that with the Fed as well. Um, So the the issue is all all of that housing uh, appreciation we saw in the last couple of years, that's been fueled by credit. So a lot of people have borrowed lots of money at these ultra low interest rates. And unlike a lot of countries, our mortgages are floating rate. There's a bit of fixed in there, but the majority of it's floating rate. So the economy is very sensitive to change in interest rates. So, the, so my view is that the Reserve Bank doesn't need to be as aggressive as the cash futures are pricing. If they get up into the high threes, we're looking at a recession, probably even in the high twos would be a problem. So I think, yeah, I'm probably with the camp of most of the, the professional forecasters that maybe 2% is where cash rates go. Uh, or at least the Reserve Bank gets to two and pauses and see how much damage the uh, the housing market does to the economy. What's the inflation rate looking like? Uh, you know, obviously we're, we're forecasting that um, inflation probably peaked in the US, um, you know, last month. Um, and mm. we're already starting to see signs of that kind of rolling over. Um, uh, what's the status in Australia? Yeah, the Reserve Bank itself has upped its um, forecast to the end of the year to 6%. Um, so the last time they put out a forecast, it was three and a quarter. So they've, they've moved it quite <laughs> dramatically. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, Mose, I mean, we get a lot of companies through, through here. And anecdotally, it, it sounds like it's absolutely everywhere. It's just becoming ubiquitous, you know, whether it's wages, raw material prices, um, you know, freight costs, uh, transport costs. Um, you know, uh, fuel costs have doubled, if, if not tripled. Um, and obviously, a big country like Australia, you've got to move a lot of stuff around. So you kind of get a sense that you know, it's just um, percolating up and we are going to see some prints, maybe not as high as what the, the US, US, US has had in terms of eights and sevens and things like that, but certainly it feels like there's an undercurrent and it is serially correlated, as you know. So inflation begets more inflation. So I think I think it could be it could be out of the bag. The journey could be out of the bottle, so to speak. Certainly, we see that, for example, in the UK. I think labour flexibility, all those things, are actually going to matter quite a lot as we move into this next phase. Um, mm. And uh, whether you can immigrate, obviously, Australia's, I guess, a COVID that wasn't the case, or certainly the last two years, um, immigration's probably been uh, on the on the downside. But um, uh, you know, labour slack is is there labour slack in in Australia? No, well, there's complaints from all sorts of people that you, you can't get workers. Anecdotally, uh, you get you can get $100,000 Aussie a year to wash dishes in Sydney because there's such a shortage of labour. And and you're spot on in terms of migration. I mean, Australia, net migration somewhere between one hundred and fifty and 250000 a year, mostly English backpackers, most coming out to, to <laughs> enjoy some sunshine. Um, but, um, yeah, and some of those are like fruit-picking jobs, like seasonal jobs, but a lot of them are are, you know, uh, working in hospitality and those sorts. So those industries are really, really struggling. So we, we need the borders to reopen. We need a couple of hundred thousand people coming into the country just to solve the current labour shortage, let alone, you know, the labour shortage going forward. And um, has Australia suffered the same issue that, say, the US and, and other places have had 
where people just don't want to go back to work. You know, they've, they either they're afraid, they're looking for elderly, can't get childcare, you know, all of those sort of um, elements. Is, is that the same in Australia? Yeah, I don't think it's as, as, as bad as, as the US because I think the, um, the, the welfare or, or the, you know, the sort of welfare payments that were put in place during COVID, there was definitely an element of, of while that while that safety net, we, we had a, a couple of things called JobKeeper and JobSaver, where the government was basically paying people's wages. Often the wages people were receiving were more than they were getting when they were working. So while that program was in place, that was a big issue. Um, now that's all been pretty much all been removed. And so it's back to the open market again. Um, the you know the the unemployment rate is is around about that four level. We'll get some more job data, you know, in, in a couple of weeks' time. That will probably push into the low threes. That's as low as as it as it's been. I mean, post war it was like one or two, but pretty much since then, you know, three and a half is as low as it's ever going to get. So it's a super tight labour market. Interesting. So certainly uh, continues to um, so push that those inflation metrics and uh, obviously, um, you know, the interest rate environment has got to be tighter. Now, what, that, what does that mean for the Aussie dollar here? Yeah, the Aussie dollar is an interesting one because it's, um, in, in some respects, it's commodity currency because obviously we're selling a lot of iron ore and coal and, you know, oil and so forth. Um, the other hand, there's the interest rate differential issue. We, we typically tend to be a, a better yielding currency, like our 10 years are about 3.6%. So, there's that, um, but it's also a bit of a risk-off currency. So, if global growth's considered to be slowing, then you know the Aussie the Aussie tends to come under pressure as as the rand does, the South African rand. So, a lot of investors look to sell the Aussie when there's a when there's a risk-off or there's a um, a slowdown in global growth. So, that seems to be the view out there at the moment is that you know if global growth's continuing to slow, that the Aussie stays under pressure. It's come down from 75 cents down to about 70. But the other, you know, the flip side is the the interest rate differentials positive with most countries, and also we've got you know commodities going up, so it's a bit of a mixed bag. And, and look, a really tricky one to forecast, as you probably know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the the, the global macro um, amount of money over, over, overweighs the other one, so probably a bit more downside to the currency before we finished. Mm. So pre the financial crisis the the big trade was always short yen long aussie um given the given the carry are we going to see yeah. that that trade coming back do you think i mean obviously yen's been very weak over the course of the last um you know i guess two years now um but is that uh, you know are we starting to see that trade be put on again i think so because as you said i mean the the JGBs give you nothing, right? So you can if you can pick up three point seven in, in Aussie Aussie uh, ten year. I mean, our, our government's still got a triple A rating, I think. So it's not like you're taking a lot of credit risk. It's just that yeah, you're picking that that three point seven uh, every year. I mean, but but everyone's just buying US dollars at the moment. Almost every other currency in the world's getting getting trashed, and people just want to buy buy US dollars. But I think you, you know, on a, in terms of a regional trade, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that coming back mm, yeah and i think uh, certainly something noticeable for me you know looking at the swiss franc recently swiss franc was very weak in in uh, in april um and uh, i think it's down about five percent as well as you know looking at the aussie and looking at uh, sorry sorry looking at the yen sorry and then looking at the crosses um you know with the highest mm. yielding currencies as i said th- that trade uh, you know has, has been dead for the last 12 or 13 years um but yeah. uh, certainly starting to notice 
you know, um, uh, that trade starting to become a lot more kind of popular in this uh, sentence environment. And, and I think it's just symptomatic of the type of environment we're in these days where you've got so many confusing signals between sort of China obviously becoming a lot weaker. You've got the US going gangbusters in terms of the economy, Australia doing very well. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, and, and Japan with a zero rate policy and uh, yeah. a negative rate policy and, and, and Euro and Swiss francs still have those too. So you've got a very, very uh, dispersed world is, is the way I describe it um, between uh, uh, either the economy, rates, currencies. Uh, it is, uh, you know, it, it does remind me of kind of a pre, pre um, you know, pre-global financial crisis, you know, uh, period you know closer to sort of i don't know 2004 2005 than a than a 2008 <laughs> yeah and there's a few people starting to say that i've seen a few hedge man, hedge fund manager on tv saying this feels eerily like a pre-crash kind of environment where there's lots of confusing signals and and, and lots of tectonic shifts going on and we've got you know, big economies, um, you know, slowing rapidly. China's clearly going to slow rapidly. We've got, we got geopolitical conflict, et cetera. And, and I think a parallel to the, you know, to the early 90s as well, where, you know, there was, a, there was inflation um, coming out of all the stimulus that happened after the early 90s recession and central banks had to move really quickly on rates. And I think 93, 94 were, were pretty tricky years for, for markets. So everyone's trying to draw that historical parallel to, to what happens when central banks are behind the curve and they've got to play catch up. It's generally pretty painful most. <laughs> yeah. Well, certainly so far it has been <laughs> the first yeah, four months yeah, have, yeah. have been a very, very tricky, certainly for bond investors with, uh, with actually, ironically, the bond uh, returns are worse than the than the equity returns this year. Equities, which is, yeah, it's been which, terrible. Which yeah. is, which Except is Australia. Australia's like sailing through our, <laughs> our market was only, only down it was down less than one percent in April. Yeah. Now looking across the globe, and there's minus eights and minus tens, and yeah, the 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 good old resilient Australian share market powered through. <laughs> well, even the FTSE was positive in in April. So, uh, the, so oh, was it? Okay. yeah, so U, UK market has also been sailing through this uh, this period. No one kind of knows why, but, but uh, I, I think it's <laughs> more the fact that we've got lots of oils and. and you know, obviously, mining yeah, companies. No, no megatech. No megatech. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no megatech, and also, uh, obviously, the pound has been very weak um, in in April, and that's certainly helped uh, the translation effect of uh, of those uh, dollar earnings. So, um, let, let's talk a little bit more about commodity prices. Um, what What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, the price of of iron ore? Is it is it now on? It's going to be sort of marching lower. You know, and I and I generally we at EFG at least we 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 downgraded uh, metals certainly excluding copper, um, which we think is more of a inventory and a structural story with with electric vehicles and so on and so forth. But uh, certainly iron ore um, is kind of the classic one. Certainly, I find it really hard to make a strong case with the fact that China is slowing down. The Fed is raising interest rates, which is obviously then and, and mortgage rates in the US at five percent. So you get the sense that um, the forward-looking indicators are suggesting a, a slowing economy, um, and um, uh, you know, and uh, you know, commodity prices. Of course, Russia, Ukraine has forced those prices higher. Are we starting to see some demand destruction, slowdown in China? I mean, what's your what's your prognosis? Yeah, the, I mean, the, we're probably with the futures market on iron ore that it goes to 70, you know, 60 or 70 dollars 
over the next two years from a sort of 140, 150, but supply is just incredibly tight. I mean, everyone is running flat out, you know, Vale is back on stream now. Um, all the, all the Pilbara operations, Fortescue, Rio, BHP, they're all running flat out. No one's really got any new capacity coming on stream until, until the Chinese can get Simondao in Guinea um, which is a really tricky deposit, bringing that on stream in the next few years. So there's no new supply for iron ore. Um, so it just comes back to the demand issue you talked about, which is China construction. So obviously that economy is slowing rapidly because um, of the lockdowns. And, you know, China traditionally goes to fixed asset investment as a stimulus because, you know, it can get a lot of money out to a lot of people, create a lot of jobs, get a lot of activity going. And, you know, the multiplier effect on fixed asset investment is is quite high. So China tends to go back to mama all the time and go, right, we need to stimulate. Let's let's put more buildings up and let's import more iron ore and let's make more steel. So that's why we've got $140, $150 iron ore, despite the fact that our major consumer seems to be heading into recession. So I think, yeah, all the analysts, and we speak to lots of analysts in the market, they've all got the same view. Iron ore's, you know, 50, 60 bucks longer term. Even the Australian government has a $55 US um, price in its budget estimates and yet we're trading 150. So every day we go, we look at the iron ore price, 140, 150. Everyone upgrades the earnings. So the earnings just keep going up. They're paying massive dividends. So it's difficult to see the share prices underperforming, even though you kind of think we're going to wake up one morning and someone's going to go, why, why are we paying $150 for iron ore? We should be paying 100 or, or 75 And you kind of think that moment's ahead of us. So we're, we're sort of, um, we're, we're underweight the sector in our portfolios, but we're not out of it altogether. Just because every day you go past, you get a, a begrudging upgrade to the earnings and the dividends and the cash flow. And, and so it's one of those sort of, it's staying high for longer than people think. Uh, what's the LNG situation like in uh, in Australia? Are there sort of many quoted companies or, or, or businesses that focus on the LNG, given that it seems to be the focus at the moment? Yeah, we've got two very big, well, about to be mega cap, <clears throat> Woodside Petroleum, which is mostly liquefied natural gas, is buying BHP's petroleum assets. <clears throat> that that deal will be consummated in the next couple of months, and that'll take them to about a 60 billion Aussie market cap. <clears throat> Another company we've got is Santos, um, and it's bought Oil Search, which is a PNG-based operator. That's got a <clears throat> excuse me a very large um, LNG operation that they're developing. So those two companies make up. They're probably about a hundred billion uh, market cap between the t- two of them, and then and then it sort of drifts away after that. So um, a lot of investors, as you know, just won't go near that sector now. So <laughs> it, yeah. you know it probably it probably stays cheap. We've got quite a few listed um, coal companies, and you know they're trading on five times earnings and twenty five percent free cash flow yields, but investors won't touch them. Um, so that's coal's definitely like coal feels like tobacco was 20 years ago, Mose, when you had those tobacco stocks and no one would buy them. Mm. Um, I think um, gas and, and oil starting to look like that as well. You know, we, these stocks are on single digits, very high free cash flow, pumping out dividends, but no one wants to touch them right now. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. We are seeing start, starting to see some broker notes to say that that uh, uh, certain certain dirty emitting. Uh, commodities are are actually ESG friendly, <laughs> so we are, we are we are we are starting to see um, um, some broken notes and people starting to justify why LNG might be a good idea or or yeah. You know. So I guess it's all going to be shades of grey or 
or, or shades of black <laughs> at some point. Yeah, you just you just got to call yourself a transition fuel. So if someone's <laughs> switching off dirty coal and they're putting clean coal in, that's a transition. So the it's interesting that the the Australian coal lobbying, uh, you know, they run some ads on TV talking about Australia's clean coal and how it's replacing this dirty coal that they burn in in Indonesia and China and we're making the world a better place by giving them a better quality coal and everyone's saying but but it's still coal <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, I like that phrase transitional energy so there we go as an ESG friendly alternative um, I'm, I'm not sure my ESG colleagues will agree necessarily so um, um, so the other sort of key thing I guess certainly they got a lot of headlines uh, over the last uh, year or so has been Australia's relationship with China. It's obviously been always been a very, very strong relationship um, and one bit that's built on trade um, and uh, and tourism. You know, Australia's always been one of the most popular destinations for uh, Chinese tourists. Um, how's the relationship with China, um, you know, these days? And, uh, you know, what is the kind of overall direction of, 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 of travel, given, I guess, uh, you know, China's... Um, longer-term ambitions um, in, the, in the region? Yeah, the, the relationship, relations are not good, Mose. Um, as you said, we're, we're kind of reliant on, on each other. Um, you know, if, if, they don't, if they don't buy our iron ore, I mean, nobody's going to buy it. But if, if, you know, if they can't get iron ore from us, they can't get it from somewhere else. So there's this kind of um, you know, mutually beneficial relationship in terms of uh, raw materials and so forth. And we obviously act import a lot of stuff from China too, but relationships are pretty bad. So Australia's kind of stuck in a kind of post-World War II, um, you know, foreign policy. We basically do what America uh, does uh, or, or the UK does. And, you know, that, that's illustrated with the submarine deal that was done, um, you know, about six months ago where Australia agreed with the UK and the US to, to you know, to build a nuclear submarine capability um, in in the Pacific, which is you know kind of what are we doing building a nuclear submarine capability in the Pacific? Because uh, the Americans want us to, right? So we kind of and and China knows that. So China's kind of using us as a little bit of a whipping boy to to you know to to tate a tate with uh, with certainly the US and probably a lesser extent to the UK. So a former prime minister says we should seek our security in Asia, not from Asia. And that was uh, the Honourable Paul Keating said that, and I think that's spot on. I think Australia still, some parts of Australia still see themselves as part of the, you know, post World War II colonial world order. You know, we're the we're the uh, the British representative in, uh, in 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 this part of the world, um, and a lot of governments have been saying, "Not we're part of Asia. We need to be uh, stronger relations." So, we've uh, China came up with a list of fourteen complaints, and they published them through the Global Times, which is kind of the mouthpiece of the of the party, uh, and they they isolated areas where they thought Australia had done the wrong thing, um, like dumping wine. I mean, Australia doesn't dump wine. We've got really good quality wine and it's prestige, And but they banned wine. Um, they accused us of dumping coal and dumping barley. And so there's all this kind of, um, you know, almost fabricated uh, trade issues that the Chinese have come up with. But, yeah, so the relations aren't good and they don't seem to be getting any better because both sides of politics know there's votes in being not anti-China, but being strong. They seem to be strong and standing up to China. So both, um, you know, prime ministerial candidates are, are trying to appear strong to China. You get the same thing in the US, right? If someone is seen to be kowtowing to China, then they lose 
they lose a certain part of the electorate. So we've got both sides of policies. I will be tough with China. We'll stand up to China. So it's difficult to see relations improving anytime soon. Having said that, you know, there's lots of um, back and forward trade flow. When the borders reopen, there'll be lots of students and, and all that sort of stuff and lots of capital coming into our property market. So that'll all continue. But at a diplomatic and political level, the relationships are pretty lousy. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's a I guess it's not just unique to Australia. I think um, the same thing with UK or Europe and the US, and that continues to kind of bubble, you know, uh, un- under the surface. Um, so uh, you talked about the election. Obviously, you've got one coming up. Um, wh- what's the prognosis? It's really interesting. We've got an incumbent government, which um, the Morrison government, who's yeah, they've probably done a reasonably good job of handling the economy during COVID. Um, but th- this seemed probably seemed to be a little bit, you know, a little bit tired, and you know, there's, there is a probably a mood in the po- in the population to maybe change. Um, you know, it, there's a little bit of a leadership issue with the prime minister. He's not probably seen as as as, uh, as, as effective as some other people would like him to be. Um, so there's a reasonably good chance of a change of government. I mean, having said that, there was the quite polarised policies. We have elections every three years. Three years ago, the, the um, policies were quite polarised on things like climate change, on things like superannuation, things like uh, wages and wage control. The, uh, Labor, got, Labor got toasted at the last election. They probably should have won it and they threw it away. And they've just moved their policies right next to where the Liberal National Party coalition are. So you can't, you can't see daylight between the two sets of policies. So now it's just they're playing a, a you know playing a, a loser's game. They're trying not to lose rather than trying to win. So I think a lot of a lot of voters are quite um, um, I suppose disengaged. Even though we have compulsory voting, a lot of people are disengaged because they just can't see a lot of difference between the two. But we probably will get a change of government. We probably get a Labor government. Um, but you know, like uh, around the world, there's more and more um, independent uh, candidates. There's more single issue parties so we'll probably see the balance of power being held by one or two of these you know special interest groups and whether they're the greens or whether the you know the the um the one nations and the, and the united australia party which is the other side of the political spectrum and and the labor party will probably have to form a coalition of some sort uh with with the greens or the left side of the politics or if the Libs get in, they'll have to form a coalition with the right side of politics. That's very common around the world, right? So we'll probably see something like that. But the, the market, I mean, the, the institutional investors I talk to don't see it as being a market-moving issue that we get a change in government. They just see more of the same. Yeah, I guess um, once they've, they've all merged together or get so close together, it becomes less and less, uh, you know, market-moving. So I think that certainly yeah. sounds about right, I think. And uh, what we're seeing in many other countries as well, even... Here in the UK, uh, obviously conservative parties in power, but Labour uh, have tried the left, the far left, and, and it didn't work out very well. Um, and they're certainly moving closer to the right. And, um, and uh, um, you know, I suspect if Labour even has a chance over the next few years, it's it's going to have to be with a, with, um, with a very middle-of-the-road uh, policy stance. Um, yeah. And I suspect that, you know, and again, it won't necessarily, necessarily be uh, market moving as uh, Jeremy Corbyn would have been in the last UK election. Yeah. Um, very good. Excellent. So, um, Martin, so um, thanks for, um, for, for, for coming. I think it was very, very interesting uh, commentary. 
Um, learned a lot today, which is always good, um, as we always like to do every day in this business. Uh, so certainly we'll uh, love to have you on again soon um, to give us an update of what's going on uh, in, in Australia and uh, and the outlook for, um, well, a hell of a lot, <laughs> be it geopolitics to, to mining to energy. So uh, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, very, uh, very enjoyable and look forward to uh, seeing you in person in the not too distant future, Mose. Yeah, no, absolutely look forward to it. So uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap up uh, the podcast. So uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. If you do have any questions, either for me and indeed Martin, uh, please send an email to beyond at fgam.com and I'll say we'll be sure to pass it on to, to Martin. So with that, thank you very much and we'll speak to you again soon. 